Mark chapter 14. Bless us, Father. After two days, it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, um, I just, I'll point this out beforehand because um, we run into this thing where people try to fit Good Friday in here, okay? And um, honestly, so much was created out of ignorance uh, by the Roman Catholic institution. They, they did not study the ancient text. They did not encourage the people to study the ancient text. They often read uh, the Bible in its most recent translation and then instituted whole traditions based around their misunderstanding of the scripture. Okay. We, we hear how Jesus is crucified and how they have to take him down off the cross because the next day is the Sabbath. And there, you know, later in history, the Roman Catholic institution is thinking that's Saturday. And in fact, what it was was the Passover. So the Sabbath that they're honoring is the religious day of rest for Passover, not Saturday. So, so it isn't Friday in all likelihood we're talking about good wednesday okay when jesus was crucified uh, the the problem is when you start inserting traditions then you try to tr- make the word of god conform to incorrect traditions and then when it's discovered oh that's actually incorrect well then people throw the baby out with the bathwater they get rid oh the word of god isn't trustworthy why because there's some cockamamie tradition in uh, the church. Okay, so here the Passover is about to take place, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So they begin by getting rid of all the leaven. It's it's a symbol of sin. They use leaven, yeast, commonly in a lot of different recipes and circumstances. But at this time, you know, if you think that like, you know, Israel is all pita bread or something, it's it, there's, there's leavened bread. You know, there's lots of leaven in different scenarios there. Uh, it, it is at this time, because of its association with uh, sin, they go through this ritual of purging out the yeast, getting rid of the leaven. And it's it's a, a game they even do with the children to teach them a spiritual lesson where we got to get rid of all the leaven. And they go through the house and, oh, they take the, the normal jar and they get rid of that. And then, you know, they would actually hide a portion somewhere in the house you know in their sock drawer or whatever and you go oh what is this doing in here they would have to search for it and find it and they would teach the children that like sin you have to have a willing heart uh, to let the lord show you and expose to you and search for and get rid of so this feast of unleavened bread and that had to do with passover because they had left out of egypt in such haste that they didn't put yeast into their bread to let it rise and bake it. They baked flatbread, ate the um, unleavened bread with the Passover, and then departed from Egypt. So the two days, the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. Uh, There are a couple elements there. They've been trying to trip him up in conversation, in in serious ways. Uh, You know, should we pay taxes or not? If he says no, then they're just going to go right to Rome and tell the authorities that Jesus is teaching some brand of insurrection, rebellion, tax evasion, and they would arrest Jesus and hopefully at least punish him, maybe crucify him is what they're really driving at. They want death, and they're moving towards that uh, more steadily they have to go to the romans because in AD 86 rome took their authority of capital punishment away and that's an interesting historical moment because the scripture had prophesied that there would not cease to be a ruler in judah and that he would bear the capital punishment authority until the messiah came Uh, it says until shiloh 
had come. The peace, uh, the bearer, the bringer of peace, the prince of peace is what they were waiting for. And so in, in 6 AD, Rome seizes control uh, governmentally of all of Israel and says, we will now be the ones who give the authority regarding capital, any means of capital punishment. Uh, the high priest with a gathering of the Sadducees went through the streets uh, when that was declared uh, in uh, mourning, dressed in black, ashes, shaved his head, shaved his beard, ashes upon his head, saying uh, that God had died, that, that the scriptures had been nullified because uh, they had this prophecy uh, stating that they would bear authority to govern themselves until the Prince of Peace had come, until Shiloh had come. And uh, had they only looked, right? You know, there was a, a little boy in a carpenter's shop uh, in that moment who had been born in Bethlehem who was the Messiah and who was amongst them. Uh, remarkable uh, instance. So now they've got to look for Roman authority, and that's why there's such effort made to put him before the Romans because they cannot do this themselves. Um, you know, it doesn't stop them, right? They'll stone Stephen to death, you know, but Jesus is such a public figure that if they execute him in this way, then heads are going to roll, and there is massive conflict between Pilate and the leaders of the Jews. Uh, uh, he has showed up uh, in the middle of the night and uh, gone to the Antonio Fortress when he took his position of authority and he's raised the standard uh, flags of his regiment and all of his uh, authority. He, he was, you might say, part of the Secret Service he was of the Praetorian Guard. They, they were the ones who protected uh, the emperor and uh, were the personal bodyguards. Uh, so he, he bore a lot of authority, a lot of elite military prowess. And uh, when he arrived in the middle of the night, uh, his mindset was set the Antonio Fortress in order, snap the troops to attention, you know, fly the banners, let you know, all of Israel know the level of Roman authority that has arrived here, well, uh, that's right next to, abutted to the uh, Temple Mount. And the Jews get up the next morning and here are all these pagan flags flying over uh, the temple and they're fit to be tied. They raise a massive stink about this whole situation. Uh, so much chaos inside the city uh, just uh, riotous events that he actually leaves and goes back to Caesarea, which is where his palace is. And 5,000 of them follow him there, surround the, fort, the, the palace in protest. He threatens them with death. And so they literally roll down their collars, lay down on the ground and ask for their heads to be chopped off. Uh, obviously he can't just slaughter 5,000 Jews, many of them the leaders of uh, the Jewish community, so he has to relent. He goes back, has all of the standards taken down, and returns to just the simple plaque of declaration that it is the Antonio Fortress, but now he's fit to be tied. And there's huge conflict between him and the Jews. So this is why... They're pushing his buttons when we get to the trial later. And uh, they're, they essentially say, I'm paraphrasing, you've read it many times, uh, but, but they, the Jews say to him, uh, we have one king, and that's Caesar. This man claims to be king of the Jews. Do, do you want us to have to report to Caesar and tell Caesar that this man is claiming to be king of the Jews and you didn't report that to him or you didn't deal with this man? Uh, he's trying to shirk the responsibility and hand it off to Herod. So we're going to see a number of things that demonstrate this massive conflict between the Jews and uh, Caesar. This, this, uh, or between Pilate. This conflict 
uh, has blown up over and over again. And it's so bad that at this point, uh, Pilate is under threat from Rome that if he loses control of his district one more time, it's definitely going to be his ouster from his position. It could possibly cost him his life. So they've got to take him uh, to Rome, have him put to death. They said during, uh, not during the feast, lest there should be an uproar of the people, right? We don't want to unleash Rome upon ourselves. So we're going to manage this circumstance very carefully as we're going through this. Now, for those of us that you know know the circumstances, as much as they plan, the Lamb of God will be sacrificed on the Passover. Make all the plans you want to, you know, good or bad. In the end, God is in control, right? Uh, as you watch the news and you see the chaos and the stupidity all around you right now, be a very serious student of Psalm chapter 2 and Psalm 37, right? Why do the heathens rage? Why do the nations plot a vain thing, right? You know, he holds them in derision. He laughs. God mocks and scoffs, right? Aren't there a few political leaders you'd like to just laugh in their face, say a few things to? The Lord does. The Lord holds them in derision. He mocks at them as he's going to accomplish exactly what he said. Now, if you're sitting around thinking like one world government's coming, understand that's God's plan, right? Right? This isn't spun out of control. That's God's plan. He's setting this all up. You know, there, there's a good thought in this whole thing. I don't know if you've realized it, right? One world government was God's plan in the beginning. Adam put him in control of the whole ball of wax. This is just a cheap imitation, a wicked imitation that's coming. But God is the one who's orchestrated all of this. We've got to go through these things. So I digress. Here, uh, they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar. And being in Bethany, that is significant to a number of things, at the house of Simon the leper. Now, um, we assume with a fair amount of confidence that Simon used to be a leper. Okay? It, it doesn't seem right that Jesus would show up and not heal the man. You know what I'm saying? Um, and uh, he you know, probably is known by this. Another uh, comment, another thought within this is the probability that uh, Simon the leper is actually the father of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So that would certainly make you uh, love Jesus very deeply if your father had previously been a leper and been restored to you, right? Some of us have had uh, loved ones who were given a death sentence who the Lord delivered them from those, and it deepens your heart and your soul in your relationship with the Lord. You know, now you understand perhaps uh, if that be the case, why Mary wants to sit at his feet and Martha wants to serve him so adamantly. So they're in the house of Simon the leper as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask, a very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. I don't know if you've actually spell, smelled real spikenard, um, you know, even diluted in oil. It's very fragrant. Uh, very, I find it very enjoyable. It's a, it's a great fragrant, fragrance. You find it in Israel a lot. And, um, you know, like most things, Closer to the source, uh, more pungent uh, that it becomes. If you're uh, reading Alabaster bo uh, you know, Box, this is probably uh, more shaped like a rosebud is what we're looking at. Sealed vessel that was saved for a few different possibilities of very special moments. We're going to see the discussion about how costly uh, this is in just a moment. But it was often reserved for weddings um, that you would break this open and that everyone at your wedding would be anointed with this oil. Um, you know, just to be blunt, 
hygiene wasn't a massive priority in these days. And uh, at your wedding, you wanted everything to be pleasant, including uh, how everyone smelled, you know, not just the, the bride. So this was like a standard thing and very acceptable and, and, and very encouraged that at the wedding you would, you know, come and, you know, much like anything you might experience at weddings today that was very normal, everyone would get anointed with a decent amount of this. And it would make the, the entirety of the wedding very pleasant, sometimes kept for someone's burial, that they would their body would be anointed with this, that for all the other I don't know, horror and heartbreak you're experiencing of loss, there's a very pleasant and fragrant aroma uh, at uh, the burial, sometimes simply kept for its value, uh, that in your elder years, you could sell it and it would help uh, with uh, caring for your needs. So this is extremely costly. We're going to see uh, approximately a year's wa wages. Uh, she breaks this open and the flask and poured it on his head. Very significant for contrast because this is poured upon his head. Commonly, Mary is mistaken and mixed up with the woman in Luke chapter 7 who anoints Jesus' feet. Okay, so just to read it, Luke chapter 7, looking at verse 36, then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. So we're in Luke chapter 7, we're not in Bethany. We're actually in Galilee. And in uh, Mark chapter 14, we're in the home of Simon the leper, whereas in Luke chapter 7, we're in the home of a Pharisee. Okay, so uh, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. He went to the Pharisee's house, that is in Galilee, sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, um, bluntly stated, she's a notorious prostitute uh, from the community. When she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil. It was common, common, that when someone as prominent as this Pharisee was holding a feast for someone as prominent as the rabbi Jesus, who was at you know a peak of popularity, that the feast would be given in the courtyard of the home and it would be very well lit with torches and there would be servants at the gate. The gates would be open and everyone passing by would see the feast and even look, there's Jesus uh, seated at the table. They would be handing bread out at the gate and if you wanted to come in, you might not be welcomed at the table, but you could sit and listen. Because often the conversations would be of notorious things, be it a political or a religious setting. Uh, just being in proximity, you might be blessed in the hearing of the conversations that were going on. Sort of a public, semi-public event uh, that you would be able to go to. So this woman coming in like this is not just like you turn around and there's a stranger standing in your house. She's come into what is a semi public event now you gotta know that as she came through the gates people bristled okay this is one of the most profound religious people of the community a pharisee and this is one of the most notorious sinners from the community who just strolled through the gate she goes right uh, to jesus and behold a woman of the city who was a sinner when she knew that jesus sat at the table of the pharisee's house brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil, stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Another um, historical possibility, strong possibility, uh, Psalm tells us that the Lord catches our tears and stores them in a bottle. Okay? The young women within this culture who, you know, you know how 
emotional teenage girls are, right? No, try raising a few at the same time. It's interesting, really interesting. They had jars with a stopper, and when they were filled with sorrow throughout their lives, they would place them upon their cheek and capture their tears and lock them away. And often, they would use them for different things, often when they got married, they would give this to their husband. Okay? Symbolic gift. You know, some of you are giving me that gross face, but follow this. The idea is all of her life's sorrow has been taken away. That, that everything she has suffered along the way that has caused her to shed tears, she now gives to this man because in the relationship, she's confident that she will not shed tears now or that he will comfort her in them. She comes here and it is quite probable that she's washing his feet with those tears. Look, if, if she is a woman who has been doing this, think for just a moment the sorrow she has experienced in life. She has been used and abused time and again. How many times did she go into a relationship hoping it would fulfill her? How many times did she just weep in bitterness alone, thinking that because of her great sinfulness, she was never going to find a man that she could give that jar to? The depth of sorrow this woman has gone through, we should not think of someone in this setting as simply being an you know, especially gruesome sinner. They're a human being who's being tormented by their sin. Now, all of that is a degree of speculation, but there's a fair amount of probability within this. You know, how much could you wash someone's feet with the tears falling from your face? You know, there, there is an oddity to it. So she comes. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, this man, if he were a prophet, you've got to hear the sarcasm and the snarkiness and that, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And, and in that is the actual definition in Jesus then confronts him with his knowledge and her great love over the fact that, you know, I've come into your house, you never greeted me with a kiss, you didn't wash my feet, you didn't attend to me at all. This woman has come in, and because she has been forgiven such great sin, she is washing my feet with her very tears, and she is anointing me with oil and caring for my need. You've neglected me? And she has poured herself out in extravagance upon me. He who is forgiven much loves much, was the summary there. So back to Bethany in Mark chapter 14. Uh, she pours it uh, on his head. And uh, on his head. verse 4, uh, but there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. Now, uh, the parallel gospels tell us that it was Judas who complained. And then we even get the confession in John that Judas complained because he was the money keeper for Jesus' ministry, and they later learned that it was because he had been stealing from the ministry all along the way. He was embezzling from the, the ministry. So, so this year's wages, what is that to you? $30,000, $40,000, $50,000, $70,000, a whole year's wages is wrapped up in this flask, and this woman just pours it out upon Jesus in the moment, the criticism that comes from Judas is then joined by the other disciples, right? You want to be very careful 
about what affects your heart. Right? You might not be thinking anything uh, critical along the lines, but somebody you respect starts jarring away. You know, oh, well, that ministry, oh, well, that guy, oh, well, those circumstances, and you're joining in with, yeah. <laughs> uh, these men were dragged into uh, Judas's faults. That actually is the core of why he ends up betraying Jesus. He is taking care of himself constantly as he's working in Jesus' ministry, right? How many times has he stolen and lied? Think about that. If you're stealing this much money like this, where do you spend it? Right? Wow, Judas, where'd you get those sandals? You know? Really? None of us has a chariot. What are you, you know, I I don't know. I mean, it's, it, it seems as though this man must be caring to his needs. You know, he's tend to, oh, I got an inheritance. My uncle passed away. I don't know what he's doing. But you know there's a tremendous amount of dishonesty associated with this thievery. Right? A year's wages, that's all he sees. Is, I got, you know, what? how do you want to put it? $30,000? I could have spent ten grand, convinced these guys that I was doing all kinds of good things. I could have pocketed $20,000. Nobody would have flinched. They were so convinced of Judas' behavior, right? He's not wandering around in a black cape, you know, thick mascara on, looking like the devil himself. He's the treasurer. He's well-respected. When he leaves here shortly, they all assume when he gets up from the Passover meal and leaves the whole assembly, they assume he's going out to do something good for the poor. This, this is how thorough his lie is to them. Man, Judas, we received donations last week. How is it that we've got nothing this week? Well, the poor people were just, you know, just constantly in need. I mean, you know, you were with us. You saw them. They were all needing. They ate yesterday, but the next day they're all hungry. Th this guy is a crook. You know, every, anything you've ever heard, read, or experienced in ministry of people today that behave like this, Judas is, you know, one of the originals. This, this is how he's conducting himself. Here, he's rebuking them, you know, and uh, uh, wanting this money. Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? Listen, <clears throat> why do you trouble her is why... Are you making it public and embarrassing her that way? That's literally the question that's asked. This woman has come and semi-privately, right? She hasn't blown the trumpet, made the announcement, gathered everyone together and performed this, you know, giving to the Lord in such a way that she receives. She's just doing this from the deepest sense of her heart, giving something to Jesus. They make it public and they make it an embarrassment. She's, right, what would we say? She's giving it all to Jesus and they're embarrassing her for it. Judas leads the charge, right? Matthew and others tell us all the disciples joined in in berating her. Jesus is knocking them back on their heels. Why would you embarrass this woman for serving me in this way? Why are you troubling her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always. Hey, pause right there. There are so many ministries that falsely teach that if you're a Christian, you should not suffer. You definitely shouldn't ever be poor. Okay? You, you listen to these guys, right, as they fly around the world in their private jets, taking advantage of the body of Christ. And there were a group of them, you know, on their you know, network and their satellite, 
programming in the 90s who got in a whole lot of trouble with the government because they were telling people on their television programs God was going to repay them tenfold. If you send me $10, God is going to give you $100. So go ahead, even if you don't have the money right now, and write the check. Right? Write the check and, you know, even beyond just overdrafting, right? There comes a point where it's larceny. It's fraud. They're writing checks out to ministry they can't cover. Why? Because they're being told God will repay you. There, there is nothing wrong, right? If our laziness, our sin, uh, you know, things of that nature cause us to be impoverished, well, then there's something that we need to learn from the Lord and be obedient in. Certainly, right? We need to be corrected if those types of things. Uh, but let's face it, life's circumstances are harsh. And you can find yourself in need. Jesus doesn't say, you know, no one should ever be poor. <laughs> You'll always have the poor. And whenever you wish, you may do good for them. The poor are always going to be around. You can help the poor people out all the time. You don't have to worry about that. You're not going to run out of poor people. You know, you could have taken all of this money and gone, you know, change this uh, alabaster flask in and receive whatever amount of money you were going to and then distributed all of that money to the poor and guess what you'd still have poor people why are we overly concerned about the poor think about that think about that in your giving to the Lord and your cooperating with the Lord there's always going to be needs and the Lord wants us to pour out upon him so you're always going to have them to do good for them but me you do not have always she has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Remarkable. Remarkable. The way Jesus words that actually seems to indicate Mary knows what she's doing in regard to his death, right? Jesus just gets done moments ago saying to these guys, I'm going to be betrayed and crucified, and they immediately ask, can we have the right hand and the left hand when you enter into your kingdom? Maybe you missed what I just said. I'm going to be put to death. Right. So, could we have those positions? This woman seemingly understands, at least to a degree, that Jesus' death is imminent. She's done this in preparation for my burial. You know, I've wondered many times, if Jesus, as he was being scourged, as he was being beaten, as he was being crucified, if he could smell this fragrance upon himself, and if it didn't minister to him, when it feels like no one loves you, and you can see and experience, no, this person right here that's being tender to me does. Everybody else hates my guts right now, but this person. I, I wonder, right? You know how hard it is to get oil, deeply fragrant oil, poured down over your head, you know? I, I've given the illustration before. I've made the mistake, you know, in the blindness of the shower of just filling my hand with the and they smear and like, why well, can't my wife's conditioner? You know, and you rinse and rinse and rinse. Why? Because it is oil-based. You know, I don't know why women. Anyway, so, you know, just probably helpful, and I should probably do something like that. But anyway, point is, oil clings, oil stays. It's difficult to get rid of. And, and perhaps, quite probably, Jesus still has this fragrance upon him as he goes through his suffering. Assuredly, I say to you, Wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. That's quite a testimony. Uh, you know, someone pouring out of themselves with such great luxury upon the Lord that it would be remembered. 14 verse 10, Then Judas, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray him to them. And when they heard it, 
They were glad and promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. So there are several elements within the convenience of betrayal that are really quite interesting. But uh, how interesting it is that Peter and Mark, in authoring this gospel, make sure that they couple uh, Mary's gift to Jesus against the contrasting Judas jealousy betrayal. A man who, who was angered at someone's sacrificial gift to Jesus who had ever been stealing from Jesus and taking for himself. You know, these two things stand to you know, testify against one another. It's really quite a remarkable thing that takes place here. Convenient way to betray him um, with subtlety. Right? Judas is a full-on coward. He, he is not going to go get, and this is a big group, right? Uh, the terminology that used is a Roman cohort. So he brings 700 highly trained, uh, seven, 600, I'm getting all my numbers mixed up tonight, 600 highly trained, heavily armed Roman soldiers along with uh, the guards from the temple and the, the high priest to arrest Jesus. He doesn't just walk up in the open square and say, that is the man right there. This is Jesus, the guy you want to arrest, right? He comes, as we're going to see, as you probably are very well aware of, and he kisses Jesus, and he does it uh, in such a way that it's just like walking up and shaking someone's hand, but doing it very adamantly, right? So he gives them the sign of when I go up, and, you know, I just pump this guy's arm off and shake his hand endlessly. That's the guy. So when he comes up and he kisses Jesus, it's a standard greeting of the Middle East, the left and the right tree. Greetings, Rabbi. But he does it with fervence repeatedly is what he ends up doing. So, so the whole uh, convenience, as it's described here, is the idea of, can we do this in a way that's obvious and yet subtle? I don't really want to be known as the... I want to be able to, like, later deny. You know what I'm saying? No, I didn't. I wasn't. I was just there. I just happened to be there. I was just I was just kissing him. I was just saying hello. You know, I was just shaking his hand. You know, they must have figured out who he was. Uh, you know, it's fairly obvious to everybody in the process, but... You know, when he when it's telling us there that he wants to conveniently betray him, he wants to do it with at least some degree of subtlety so he's not uh, held accountable. Now, on the first day of the unleavened bread of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? I described this morning as we shared in communion that. The, originally, the Passover lamb, uh, so if we go back to Egypt, you're looking at the ten plagues have come upon, or the, right, the nine plagues have come upon Egypt, and the tenth is going to be the death of the firstborn. So um, the, uh, the people of Israel are commanded to, offer this sacrifice to the Lord, and the head of the household is supposed to slaughter the lamb and do the preparation for the Passover. And then they are to, you know, put the blood on the doorposts and the lentils, uh, slaughter the lamb, uh, drain its blood right there on the doorstep of the home uh, so that when the death angel passes over, it will see the blood and pass over that home, hence the term Passover. So the responsibility of the sacrifice of the lamb is falls to the head of the household. Over time, that changes until now the priests actually perform that ritual of slaughtering the lamb. What's remarkable is that has to take place because they're going to be the ones that kill the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Okay, it, it touches the head of every household, but it is done at the hands of the priests. 
So uh, there are many explanations, uh, but really it's inexplicable. Why did this, this ritual change from being done by the head of the household over to the priest? And the only reason is that it was a foreshadowing of the fact that the priests were going to be the ones who did it with Jesus. Now, another element that's very interesting within this is that up until a little more than a hundred years before Jesus, the Assyrians originally started crucifixion and that went through time up until the Romans were really using it, but it was done on a straight pole where they nailed their hands directly above their head, but they died far too rapidly for the taste of the Romans. They wanted people to suffer. So they included the cross member and they spread their arms out. So by the time Jesus is crucified, this has been going on for more than 100 years where, where they spread out their arms, which allows for the people uh, that are being crucified to push up with their feet, take the weight off their arms and to breathe uh, but the pain in their feet will be overwhelming as they stand upon that spike. And so they'll collapse back down into hanging in their arms and they go through this until it actually becomes convulsions. The longest recorded crucifixion in Roman history, recorded by the Romans, was an entire week. A person hung on the cross begging people that passed by to give them a drink of water. They, they ultimately believed that the person died of dehydration hanging upon the within hours their wounds had coagulated and uh, they were no longer bleeding and the romans sat there at guard and uh, let the person just suffer and die uh, when they did it on the straight stake uh, they died usually within an hour the longest recorded was three hours that they hung on the cross romans didn't like that they wanted you to be a a dying billboard for them, right? They put your crime above your head, right? Rape, murder, theft was posted above your head. Everybody that w walked by, they would do it right at four-way intersections. They really liked that. If there were multiple roads, they would crucify people right there. So everyone passing by would be horrified by this naked body nailed to the cross, screaming and wailing for hours and days until they perished. I say all of that because at this point, we've moved from the head of the household performing the crucifixion to now it's the priests who are going to sacrifice the lamb. And they actually do a strange ritualistic crucifixion of the lamb where the lamb is brought to them and they slit the throat and they bleed it out. And then uh, they skin it and put a skewer through its shoulder blades without breaking any of the bones, and then they stretch its arms out, its legs out, and fasten it to the cross members. They, graphic as it is, uh, they put a skewer down through the mouth, along the spine, and out the tail, and then they fasten the two back legs to the, uh, the the straight skewer that's there. Then they wrap it in its own skin and deliver it back to the person to take home and roast that way. Uh, on the crucifix, uh, there are Roman historians and uh, Jewish rabbis that, that said verbatim that tens of thousands of lambs are crucified at Passover every year crucified uh, the same as those who went to the cross how interesting you guys uh, that we have these descriptions in the old testament by the prophets and history followed suit in developing in similar ways so that when you get to jesus it's happening identically in in his death and burial now consider that peter and john are actually going through the process of taking this lamb which is symbolic of Jesus, and they're doing the preparation. Jesus is literally looking at this lamb and thinking about himself and what he's going to go through. It's a remarkable picture to consider what's being said. <clears throat> so <clears throat> where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? 
And he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him, carrying a pitcher of water on his head. <clears throat> um, quite uncommon for a man to be carrying a pitcher of water this way. Usually a boy, a child, much more commonly a woman to be carrying water this way. Not uh, completely unheard of. Okay, I'm not trying to imply that, but it's unique enough that when they come into town and there goes a guy with a picture of water on his head that they're like, okay, that's the dude. We don't have to question anymore. It was rare enough uh, that, you know, they they didn't, you know, say to one another, should we wait for the next guy? You know what Because it's not going to happen. Okay. Uh, if you see a man with a picture of water on his head, follow him. Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Uh, then he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared there make ready for us. Now, please, I, I would love it to be that that was like super miraculous that that had all transpired that way. But there are millions of of people that are coming to Jerusalem every year at this time for Passover. So it was a common business for people to make all the preparations for Passover and even put a, a sign outside their home saying, you know, Passover preparations for 12 here. You know what I'm saying? And you could just walk in and say, we have a party of 12. Could we you know, rent this space and have the preparations for us. So, so within it, what's, you know, interesting behind the scene is the man of, you know, with a picture of water on his head. And secondly, uh, when the proclamation is made, the teacher, the way Jesus is saying it is, you know, definitive article, the teacher, meaning Jesus. Jesus is commonly known uh, his popularity in ministry is widespread. So when they show up at this house and say, you know, the teacher, the rabbi, Jesus is in need, then they they are given the welcome to come to this location. I've sort of run us out of time, and, and my tendency is to just go until, you know, about 9 o'clock, but I'll avoid doing that to you again. And I'll just leave you with this thought, okay? <clears throat> so very often what we want is entirely motivated from selfishness and we don't even think of it that way i'm going to go serve the lord but i'm going to do it in such a way that everybody takes notice of what i'm doing okay um okay you're not like that i'm like that pray for me all right the tendency is human here is a man who is given a task to do in verse 13 that we probably would not be especially excited to do right what what how you you know you describe it and and you know i'm not scared to put the gender on it right ladies being asked to do something that is like without question overwhelmingly masculine in its sort of state, men being asked to do something that is overwhelmingly, you know, thought of as effeminate in its conduct. And this person does it. And it is the thing that brings Jesus to delivering to all of Christianity communion. Think about how important it was that we spend that time tonight. Okay. I want you to take another thought within this. I don't orchestrate how sermons fall. Okay. I, did, I didn't time out, you know, when we were going to be together, when we weren't, how quickly I was going to get through one passage, how slowly I was going to get through another, in order that we would be having this discussion as we sat here tonight and shared in communion. A, a simple obedience, right? Go get water. 
This man goes and gets water and carries a picture on his head. Clueless as to how that's going to impact Christianity, which is going to impact the world for the rest of human history. Sometimes, you guys, I have to wonder if the Lord puts a simple, maybe even derogatory task under our nose and from our humanness we're not overly excited about following through my encouragement is jump at the opportunity jump at whatever opportunity christ gives you it's interesting how we look at certain things and we think well there's a task i can do and we look at other ones and go, well, we'd never say it out loud, but that's beneath me. <laughs> really? It's beneath us. Consider the lesson that's right here. The divine orchestration that's involved and how impactual the outcome is for all of world history, right? Simple thing, communion, you know, the remembrance, all of that. Heaven and earth will pass away but my word will by no means pass away. Far more significant is what we've just read this evening than so many other things that we think of as so permanent, so tangible, that someday are not going to be anymore. So let the Lord speak to you about your tasks and what it is he may be calling each one of us to do. We pray that we do them faithfully, and even if we don't see, right, I mean, maybe this man that carried the water picture didn't even have a really clear understanding of how impactful his being there was, right? He just did it and went on his way. Maybe maybe he, we get to experience how impactful the outcome is. So you know, maybe, maybe there's a lesson in there for each one of us. Amen? Amen. All right. Well, let's stand and we'll pray together. Father God, I thank you very much for your word, for your son, for your sacrifice. Help us to be men and women that follow you, that obey you, that pour out whatever resource you've called us to, Lord. Be it very small, the widow's might, something very costly, fragrant oil. However it may be, Lord, that you've called us to simply carry a picture of water. That in contrast to Judas, that we would not be overwhelmed with our selfishness. That we would not pursue the appetites of our flesh. And in, in that, be betrayers of you. Help us to be obedient, fulfilled servants disciples, ministers of your intentions, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.